We're jumping right into things on this week's Behind the Idea. We kick off a four-part series breaking down one of our favorite investing books, Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. We look at the book chapter by chapter to see how it applies to today's market, what key lessons are, what the best quotes from the book are, and our favorite Joel Greenblatt dad jokes. Enjoy, and let us know what you think at btipod at seekingalpha.com. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. We are kicking off a special series as we break down one of our favorite books, Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. It's a goat level book. Goat like greatest of all time, not goat like bah. We talk about it on the podcast all the time. And we're finally squaring away at a few episodes to break it down for the end of your summer. A little summer reading, a little end of summer reading, back to school reading maybe, going back to investment school. Uh, we're going to take four episodes to cover the book. Each episode will cover two chapters and we're going to pick out the lessons, share our favorite quotes and dad jokes. Greenblatt is a huge dad joker and see how the... Investment strategy pitch looks from our vantage point today, 22 years after the book was first published. Can we be a stock market genius? Can you? You may have your doubts about us, but maybe you can. Does the spin-off recapitalization risk arbitrage approach still work in 2019? We discuss on Behind the Idea. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that breaks down what makes great investment analysis work using articles and ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem and books by Joel Greenblatt. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. While we don't have any specific plans to discuss specific stocks, If we do discuss any stocks we own positions in, we will disclose them at the end of the podcast. And real quick, listeners, listen up. I want to talk to you about podcast ratings. I have a request, and my request is simple. Please rate us. We know you are out there. And we know that you are growing in number. Soon will be a investment analyst horde, the likes of which would shake Bloomberg in its boots. Please support our efforts and help us get better with a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you are truly inspired, please put finger to keyboard or finger to phone touchscreen and leave us a review. We appreciate you all so very much. Thank you for joining us on this adventure, and thank you so much for your support. Okay, with that, let's dive in. Daniel Greenblatt, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, Chapters 1 and 2. What are those chapters about? What's Greenblatt trying to do? I think he's really laying the groundwork for everything to come for his mantra of investing at this time. And I think it... As we were talking before the show, I said, I think if you just read chapters one and two and then actually skipped the end, maybe if you really want, but 
really chapters one and two kind of cover everything you need to know philosophically. And then the middle chapters, which we'll get to in the coming episodes, are really more about examples, walking you through it, case studies, etc. And I think those are valuable, of course, but I think that's what he's trying to do here. If we just start with chapter one, which is where most people start a book, it's it's aspirational. It's He comes up with a setup of who are you, the random guy with or girl with the $24 book? How could you ever compete with the MBAs and the PhDs and everybody else out there? And then he says, actually, they don't have a chance. You're much better off than them. And it's just a grounding that I think resonates actually when you actually peel away the the humor around it is that, look, we have, when you aren't a major investor, when you don't have a lot of money to manage, you're, you have more freedom to go into unlooked corners. And we'll talk about the unlooked corners in a second. So that's, I think, one key point. Also makes a key argument about how efficient market hypothesis or random walk theory is not applicable. He argues, A, it doesn't always apply, and B, there's some assumptions and methodology that are off in in academic support for this. And so you as somebody outside the academy, managing a manageable amount of money and not, I think he says some point later in the book, quarter of a billion dollars, you can kind of do what you want. And this is, keep in mind, we're in 1997, so inflation, all that other stuff. And so I think chapter one, its key premises are that you don't actually need to diversify all that much. So you don't need to actually go, he gives the example of Rich Senna, who he calls Bob for whatever reason, even though it's clear who he's talking about, who is the manager of uh, Senna funds. It's a, I think, think still publicly listed company as well, who manages billions of dollars, still manages to beat the market, which is, he makes a point, is all the more impressive because of all the money they own. Whereas for the individual investor, 68 stocks diversifies you from market uh, from non-market risk adequately, which we can talk about. So that's another pillar. And then his final point is that he sort of lays out in chapter one is just relative value is the engine of success. He uses the example of his in-laws shopping for paintings and how all they're looking is, is this painter selling at a higher price to other auctions? Do I have reason to think, you know, if you know the different characteristics, how does it stack up? And then you buy the ones that are selling at a relative bargain. And I think that's the engine. He He's arguing that it's not, uh, it's harder. And he'll make this point again in the next chapter when talking about other investing gurus. It's harder to know whether a given painter is going to take off in popularity. It's harder to predict the future, but using the present transactions and looking for outliers is an opportunity that will lead to success. So those are the sort of pillars here in chapter one that you have a better chance than the big boys that six to eight stocks is enough and that relative value is how you're going to get there is what I took away. Okay. Let's get into a few. I mean, that triggers a lot of thoughts. First of all, you have an advantage over the big boys. That's like a key premise I think Greenblatt has here, that you're sort of more nimble and you don't face the same legal constraints or position sizing constraints that big fund managers do. You're also unencumbered by the business school and academic 
ideology of efficient markets. And I, he doesn't get into this too, too much, but I think it's sort of implicit that you don't have career risk because you're not going to get fired from managing your own. Well, I guess you could fire yourself. I probably should fire myself, but you don't have career risk. It's sort of a different incentive set. What do you think about that key argument that the, the being small is an advantage? I think it's, I think one of the interesting things about the structure of this book is that it's important to read all the way through because by the end of the book, Greenblatt tries to throw up a lot of the caveats that it's not that he's hiding these, but it's just, it's, it's easy to get grabbed by that. And so I think his point is, look, you have to do certain things to give yourself a chance for success. But I do buy that the freedom is there that, and that's important. I think the institutional constraints, I think the, the constant mark to market measurements that people do and that sort of thing. I think all of those are definite pluses for the individual investor. It reminds me of Seth Klarman in his book, Margin of Safety, talks about if, in a different sense, sense that relative performance kills people because they look all the time at the market and that affects how they think about value and just pure absolute performance. And so I think that's that. I do buy that. I think the when you look at the case made, I'm most interested in that relative value piece. It's easy to buy into this approach, but you also have to know what you don't know, or you have to know how to take your bets accordingly, given what you might not know. And I think that for the individual investor can be harder. And that is... I don't think he diminished that. I think he gets to it later, but I think that's sort of the the caveat that comes to that. I think I think there's it makes sense and I think it does play out, but I think you also have to almost do that much more work because you don't have the experience and you don't have the access to certain resources to kind of guard your your downside. I think it's interesting on two levels. One is that it does run counter. There's a lot of rhetoric and there's a lot of rhetoric coming from other investment guru types who say, you'll, you know, this, the market is rigged against the small guy, the algos, ah, the algorithms will get you or all this, you know, there's too many sophisticated uh, people trading against you. It may not be worth trying. And so I think it's an interesting initial position for Greenblatt to take. I think he's up against a pretty powerful and predominant ideology, which is the just the sort of Main Street's distrust for Wall Street and the implied assumption that investment professionals are better equipped to manage investment decisions than the home gamers are. So I just think it's it's an interesting premise to work from because it is kind of only there are not that many people sort of staking out that claim. Well, I think it's also the I think the point that is it's important. I think that he's arguing that you have sort of structural advantages, which doesn't mean there aren't structural disadvantages. Again, I think emotion, for example, and behavioral decision making i think those are things that are more important to learn for the individual investor 
but the premise that you have that you have some advantages because you don't have to worry about an individual investor doesn't have to be on FinTwit and, and sort of feeling a <laughs> feeling of group think or on seeking alpha. I'm just, you know what I mean? Like I, I think yeah. a lot about the, when you say the algos, the algos are often, I don't actually know this, so I, I don't want to put too much confidence on it, but you get the sense that that sort of trading or the things we point to when we, ball up our fists and yell the algos that they are more short-term oriented and they're more for a quick play, which if you, you know, in theory, I I know there was the, you, you called out the tweet of somebody who said, actually, everybody says they have a long-term horizon. Maybe that's not an advantage, but I, it's not so much that I think the long, everybody says they have one. I don't think people often are good at, shutting out the noise. And I think that's an individual investor advantage, but it's also a challenge. And that's where that sort of that experience and the ability to shut out the noise and focus on value or whatever. And, and Greenblatt's approach that I think is to say, look in the right places yeah, and then you will be increasing your chances. And then if you do a good job within that universe, you're, you're not going to mess up. And so I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, nothing is absolute. And the well, it's I think you hit on something there, which is that the advantages are narrow in their scope of application. It's a, like a limited set of opportunities where smaller investors have an advantage. It's not a comprehensive. It's not a, applicable to all situations. And that's why knowing where to look is sort of such a key element of this strategy. The other thing I wanted to just, I'm, I think I'm the most efficient markets person at seeking alpha potentially. And so I think it's his, his discussion here around diversification, stock market risk. He is basically concentration is okay because you can't diversify away market risk. And that's the principal risk. You can do an adequate job with company specific risk in a concentrated portfolio, but that the markets are not sufficiently efficient for you to avoid taking some swings. And I think he does a nice job of setting that up, but it almost sounds he's, I think he's sort of exaggerating maybe his authentic views on efficient market efficiency. And it's almost like what I land on fairly often is like most of the time things are efficiently priced, but there is a nice right skew to the distribution. So if you take some swings and try to manage your downside risk, then you have an opportunity to outperform because it's clear from past results that there are people doing that. So I think his relationship with market efficiency is sort of particular to that era. And I believe that markets have gotten more efficient in that time and maybe in particular with respect to some value strategies. But I don't know. I just thought, I thought it was interesting. He's not, I don't think he's making the case that like the markets are bonkers all the time. He's more making the case that there are certain scenarios where prices aren't efficient. Well, and I think on aggregate is uh, like, I think he, I can't remember where he says it, if it's in 
one of these chapters or if it's in later on, but I think he says something like the efficient markets can be relatively efficient on aggregate, but then when you balance it out, you know, if you zoom out, you could take a large cap that is traded, I don't know, 50% off uh, its highs or its lows in the past year. And if you zoom out, that probably looks efficient over time, but there was clearly some sort of perceived inefficiency and whether you define that as, well, but it just incorporated new news or whatever else. At some point, something, there was some opportunity there and having to the ability to recognize, I'm reading right now, um, the Annie Duke book, Thinking in Bets. Uh, she's the she is a well known poker player, and she is a she, she. Her book, you know, it's it's stuff that again is out of that Kahneman school. She she studied. I think she, she either finished her dissertation in P, in psychology, cognitive psychology, or she was just at that stage when she went to start a poker career. But it's uh, it just gets you thinking about like you have to recognize when you got lucky versus when you made a smart play. And I think that's part of it in what I just said about there's some inefficiencies, but you might've just gotten lucky. Sometimes you might've got it right. But I do think that on the, I think his point is that he may be exaggerating it to make his point, but also I think aggregate efficiency doesn't mean that there won't be pockets of inefficiency that you can get to. And I think the next chapter actually does a really nice job of, getting at what you just said about how some value strategies are not as efficient as they used to be. Well, Daniel, perhaps we ought to go into the next chapter then. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. I think the next chapter, what's interesting about it, you know, and he does a great job titling. This chapter is one of his most boringly titled chapters, just some basics. But I think he lays out some principles here and I'll save my favorite quote for the end when we get to it, but I think he lays out he lays out the idea of make bets where there are fewer people, look where people's aren't people aren't able to look, don't necessarily trust other people. The sell side has limitations on it, some which I think the market and we as participants generally know. We understand that the sell side can't really do sell calls as often for the for what they do and other things. But I think the principles here of trust your own work, do your own work and look where other people aren't looking as much. That is really compelling. And they, you know, and then there are some other basic sort of value investing principles, protect your downside. Don't invest what you need in the coming two or three years. Look for the long term. I liked the line, the practice of selling stocks when you need the money holds little promises and effective investment method. Like I think there's there's some base these are basics, but I think they're good basics. And I think it I think the key is that idea of looking where other people aren't looking. And if you practice that effectively, I do think the market will often offer you opportunities. Sometimes people aren't looking there justifiably. And that's, I think, when we talk so often of value versus value trap or, you know, the quality compounder versus the value school of thinking in, in this decade at the end of this long bull market. I think that's something to think about. But yeah, I think that's when you go back to this, where you get your pockets of inefficiency and where you get value strategies that maybe getting 
arbed out or where the efficiency is coming to them. I think that's the key. That's the mantra. And that's almost where I was saying, if you stopped here, you might almost to some degree be better off under in terms of your understanding of Greenblatt's principles than if you continue to read the the examples that come up in the following chapters. Say more about that. Why is that? Because I think the we'll get to I think we'll dig into it more and I'm happy to talk about like wounds or wins I've had, for example, in spin-offs, which is the most obvious. But I think if you look at spin-offs, their historic outperformance doesn't seem to be persisting over recent years. Uh, I'm I'm not speaking with the statistics in front of me, but I, I know that I've been unlucky enough to be in some bad spinoffs. And I think there's, there's something to be said for more people are looking there and Greenblatt will get into that. I think he argues later that he doesn't think that's a big worry, but I think ultimately with the explosion of the internet, with the number of people who read this book, with everything else, I think people do look in similar places, which doesn't invalidate his premise that you need to go to place where people aren't looking. It just means those places are changing and you need to be thoughtful about that. And so that's where that that's what I was getting at. I'm reminded of poker. You mentioned poker and Annie Duke and a similar dynamic. It's actually quite a, in a lot of ways, it's a similar game to the stock market. So it's understandable that it would come to mind on one level, there's efficiency versus arbitrage opportunities. And I think those dynamics hold across both. In poker, there are situations where you just want to be efficient and base the decision of what kind of hands to hold in on a sort of systematic approach to various situations and positions. And I think there's a lot of analogy between that systematic game theory optimal way of playing with philosophy that lends itself more to market efficiency. But there are also scenarios where, you know, like in rounders, when the guy's eating the Oreo, when he has it, where you should adjust the way that you play based on an opportunity that you can exploit, where there's a clear flaw in your counterparty's reasoning or decision process. And the other thing where poker seems to have an analogy is in this idea of finding opportunities to place particular bets. And I think that's where Greenblatt, he makes the racetrack analogy where he made a mistake by forecasting future performance based on past performance. And that's where I think the independence of your analysis becomes a real focal point for him. And I think maybe behaviorally, one of the stronger pieces that would be consistent with even a pretty strict view of market efficiency is that regardless to whether you can find great opportunities to outperform, I think knowing your thought process and basing your decisions on your own independent decision-making gives you an opportunity to manage adverse price moves or other scenarios that the market can throw your way in in a way that's a little bit less emotionally driven and a little bit more optimal for your portfolio and risk management perspective. So 
yeah, it's interesting that we're kind of at this dynamic of have, have we are not getting into specific tactics in chapters one and two, but there is this specter looming over Greenblatt and poker has evolved since 2000. Uh, it's a vastly different game. It's a lot more liquid and efficient game and popular game. And I think these strategies are similarly, the market has, has adapted to them. It's sort of inarguable, but the question is kind of whether there are still some applications here. Well, and I always, I, I've been thinking a lot about how Greenblatt invests now, which isn't this way. And he talks, he runs through at the end of chapter two, he runs through Warren Buffett's or well, he starts with Benjamin Graham style of investing. He throws out a margin of safety example, and then he talks about Benjamin Graham's approach. Then he talks about Buffett and the tweak of buying good businesses at fair value. Talks about Peter Lynch buying what you know uh, industries that might be strong growers, and then he sort of says why he thinks that his approach is more palatable for the individual investor. And I think about that, and then I think about what he made in the first chapter about the limits on the larger investor to do this. And so it's interesting because he invests now I'll, I'll pull out my copy of the little book that can beat the market before we do future episodes. But he, he now does a very quant oriented, it's sort of a quantified version of what you would call Warren Buffett investing value and quality factors are, the drivers or profitability factors to the drivers to his investing style. And I, you, you sort of say, well, didn't he turn his back on this? But again, in the first chapter, we talked about the advantage of the individual investor and he's grown out of that. So it makes sense there. And there's some, and I think he'll get to this later in the book, but he's managing other people's money. So there's some added stress when diversification of only six to eight stocks or concentration that sounds good on paper the way he spells it out, but it does lead to if one stock goes off, that really messes up your portfolio for a little while. So I, I think about does that render what he's done here null? And I don't, you know, I don't I don't think that's the case, but I think it is a reminder of the world changes and your circumstances change and how you approach the market can change and how you approach individual types of ideas and what works for you all can be different. And I think, I think that's where, what the core message in these two chapters is because his argument about Lynch and Buffett and Graham is basically Graham, you need to update Buffett and Lynch are geniuses more or less. And as much as you'd, even though the title of the book is you can be a stock market genius, being able to make the business analysis and predict the winners the way those two can is harder than looking for value in nooks and crannies of the market. And I think that's his key argument. And that's a mindset that I think if it's sufficiently guarded, and again, he emphasizes watch out for your downside and that's sort of the, you know, there are other ways to be protective, but that to me resonates still regardless of the specifics and regardless of how the market has evolved is know where to figure out where people aren't looking, find relative value, find other ways to identify value catalysts that might unlock value and then be patient. And I think those are as much as people 
have internalized these sorts of books, I think those behavioral aspects of being patient are so much harder than the analytical and decision-making aspects of his work. And so, yeah, I guess that's how I would, that's what I think of when you say that the, the market has changed. It has for sure. I think the general mindset can still apply. I'm like, yeah, I get into, I was out for a walk earlier today and I was just thinking like, has value been completely, are we done with the value factor? It's underperformed for so long. It doesn't seem to mean revert anymore is, you know, are, are cheap stocks just efficiently priced now? And I don't know. I, I, I think what I like about Greenblatt's framework here is that it discourages people from being intimidated by stock market investing. It makes the process of approaching stock valuation accessible. And I think that's something that's really commendable about the first two chapters is his tone. He comes across as someone you're kind of riffing with at a bar over a couple of beers or whatever he's or you know he's making dad jokes maybe he's a guy at the barbecue i don't know there's just he he doesn't come off and this seems like a very intentional choice as an academic or as any kind of wall street figure even though he's clearly a big insider in the portfolio management game but I have, I do wonder whether the the greatest advantage of this book and this strategy is inducing people to focus on their investing and that's re- that's the value add is it makes you think about your investment approach which has some effects of maybe you'll save more so that you can pursue more opportunities which is better for your long-term outcomes and Maybe you will be equipped to handle some adversity, but yeah, I, I wonder if we're down to Buffett and Lynch and the, everybody's a genius now. I would say that one of the important points Greenblatt makes when he talks about diversification is his point is sure. Six to eight stocks may seem risky. He mentions pick different industries. And so, you know, figure out how that works for you. But then he says, you know, save money, put money in the bank, real estate, like diversify on an asset level. And I think that's, I think that's compelling. It's also a reminder of the privilege of somebody who can get into the stock market. Cause usually I would think of the stock market as what you do after you've cleaned up any debt that you have in your life or, you know, any outsized debt, at least when you're saving money rather than, you know, when you're living within your means, et cetera. So I think stock, you know, investing is a privilege to be able to have money that you can put into the future. And yeah, I, so I, so I think that's an important sort of part of the behavioral things that he's encouraging, but then also, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I hear it's, it's hard for me to say that I, for example, it doesn't feel to me like we're anywhere close to a 2007, 2008 sort of event. I mean, you know, a recession is, it seems like it'll come at some point, but it's not, it doesn't feel like we're, there are as many obvious signs, the WeWork S1 aside. 
but the <laughs> and also the internet bubble you know there are we've talked about software as a service we've talked about we've we've tried to open our minds to these kind of growers and try to understand them i i think it's dangerous i i'm not saying you said it i think it's worth probing the question of what does this mean for value is value dead i think and i think there is that sort of game of poker here again which is not just a limited game like chess where it is possible that certain strategies have just been armed out and people just know it too well and so you can look at other things i'm i don't think that that means that there's no even if the baseline of what a cheap multiple is has changed and even if all these other things i have to think that there's still there are still going to be things where people buy in everybody's going to buy into the fact that value's dead and all of a sudden something will happen or whatever else i i just i i have a hard time thinking that people won't get irrational on a larger level which will lead to stocks being overpriced and persisting it could be that it's on the short side you know it could be that short selling is really the way to take advantage i don't know but it seems to me like there's going to be a nimble thoughtful patient investors i think still have opportunities out there whether or not they're the opportunities that joel greenblatt talks about in his book Mm, good okay yeah we probably don't want to get too metaphysical about the whole thing so We'll move on. Let's just move on from that topic. But I, I still think the book is inspiring. That's another, these first couple chapters are like, yeah, we can do this. You know, there's a little bit of that going on. So he does a good job of sort of gathering the kids around for a good story. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I've applied his methods one time to one specific scenario and it worked pretty well. I'm cautious in this environment about individual stock selection period. And I just don't have time to do the homework, but this was a really pivotal book for me in general. It shook me out of a more purist efficient markets attitude and I think he lays out a plan that you can follow and you can, I don't know whether you outperform or not, but it's, it's a good couple of first chapters in terms of setting the framework. So if you had to sum up chapters one and two in one sentence, how would you do it? I'll go first. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. First, the markets are, not efficient and you can exploit opportunities based on inefficient structures the professionals face but you have to do your homework okay i would say you have every chance of performing well or outperforming in the market but you need to know where to look and how to look so similar okay Okay. Hard to vary too much when you just said it before me. <laughs> no, you did a great job. Uh, Thank you. Thank so you. that's chapters one and two. Do you want to get into money quotes and favorite dad jokes? Yeah, let's let's yeah, let's let's be tight here. Let's wrap it up. So what what are you what's your favorite quote or quotes from let's go with the quotes first? Okay. Here's my money quote. 
If your goal is to do significantly better than average, then picking your spots, swinging at one of 20 pitches, sticking to net serves, or any other metaphor that brings the point home for you is the way to go. The penalty for having a focused portfolio, a slight increase in potential annual volatility, should be far outweighed by your increased long-term returns. He's just so convinced that volatility and market beta are not good measures of risk. And he is keying in on his audience's ability to select appropriate investments. And it's just compelling. And I think it captures a lot of what the book is about. What about you, Daniel? I liked the quote that I want to pull it up in the book just so that I get the lead into it correctly. Uh, but I can hear you leafing. Yeah, leaf. Give the listeners some leafing, leafing action. Yeah, so hopefully you got that, listeners. But <laughs> I, yeah. I, so I like the dated references here. When he's he talks about the secret hiding places for finding stock market profits, and he says you don't have to look under Love Canal or get shot down over a Russian military base, which not super. Well, I guess Russian military base still Were kind those of even current in. 90s in the late 90s <laughs> i don't think so i think they were like early 80s what issues. is love canal do you know what that is what's love canal? it's a, it's a nuclear it was a nuclear accident i believe like a nuclear nuclear waste was stored there might have been in upstate new york i want to say quick note love canal was a famous environmental disaster unearthed in the late 1970s involving toxic chemical waste Thank you to Behind the Idea producer Michael Lipkin for pointing us in the right direction. Back to the show. And so, but it was in the, I believe, the 70s or the 80s. And so I think this makes the argument that if you become a serious fund manager, you will just fall 10 to 20 years behind popular culture, which is, you know, to the good. We play a song from 1999 or 2000 on our podcast. Oh, so. man. <laughs> <laughs> We're the good. behind with dad Joe Greenblatt on our cultural reference points. That hurts. <laughs> but the, the, the money part of the quote is stock market profits can be hiding anywhere and their hiding places are always changing. And that's what I'm sort of, he, he then goes on to tie that specifically to the corporate actions that we're going to discuss in future episodes. But to me, that's the, that's what you take away even in 2019. And you can believe it or not. If you don't believe it, you know, you're probably not listening to this podcast just because we're not that entertaining. And why else would you listen to single stock analysis podcast? But if you do believe it, then it's just a matter of finding what the current hiding places are. Okay. But thank you if you're listening, even if you don't believe that that's possible. We appreciate your support. <laughs> Remember to leave us a rating. <laughs> uh, also, well, I yeah, that's nice humility there. I happen to believe that we're excellent at this and that we're highly entertaining, and that's why a lot of people are, are tuning in. <laughs> and with that in mind, let's move into the best dad jokes of the section. Oh boy, this could be, yeah. Well, do you want me to go first? Since I feel like you have more, you went first in the last one and you have more appreciation for the jokes. You go first. Well, I, yeah, you go first. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it. I'll bring it home. 
So I, I liked how he just sort of off off the just sort of a little joke he sm- smuggles in on page 34 <laughs> in my edition. Okay. The most successful horse players, I guess they lose the least, are the ones who don't bet on every race. I just thought that was like, I think that's supposed to be a joke about horse betting. Like, I think even despite himself, he's taking a shot at them. And uh, himself, yeah. And right, because he leads that chapter with betting on greyhounds and losing. But uh, yeah, I just thought that was kind of a funny, you know, there's some other easy jokes there as well, but I thought that was a funny one for him to yeah. slip in. Parath- parenthetical aside. Nice yep. device. Literary. Good parenthetical aside, indeed. Good parenthetical. Yeah. Okay. What about you? Mine is, sl- well, there's one that's a quick one, which is just, I I love this little trick and it's easy to slip in conversation. So if you, you know, if you're like us and you're looking for ways to impress people with dad jokes while you're uh, talking to them, or if you're like me anyway, he just has, were you going to say something? Don't say anything, Daniel. Let me oh, I just, I just want to be here to enjoy this. <laughs> he says he has a, he has a subheading in one of the chapters that says, don't trust anyone under 30 dot, dot, dot. And don't trust anyone over 30 either. Boom. Jam. The implication being that you shouldn't t- trust anyone. I like that one because it's actually a little bit of a, thought process joke that, you know, a lot of people stop looking for information when they've hit something interesting. And he, he continues past that point and looks at what people are not looking at. So the conventional wisdom is don't trust anyone under 30, but then he goes further and says, well, you know what, that's not even a complete framework. There's a better framework that includes people over 30 as well. So I like that there's a little investment nerd angle in there in addition to sort of a, a big, big punchline. I don't know, whatever. Can it I, can I did with me personally? Yeah, go ahead. He said he went over 31st, which was a callback to, Oh no, sixties you know, and the, you know, that sort of mantra of don't the baby boomer culture of don't trust the adults. And so that's what I got for not opening the book and leafing through it first. Uh, like like some of our better uh, better <laughs> better summarizers, I I knew that and I misspoke, so I apologize to our listeners. That's going to go over horribly as a joke, which is why I have a backup. <laughs> go for it. The backup's is, good. It's the plumber joke. So I'll, I'll you know what I'm going to not leave through. Here we go. So plumber visits uh, a guy who has a plumbing issue, and the plumber taps on a few pipes and then he says, here's the problem. I'll fix it. It'll be a hundred dollars. It's a quick fix. And the customer says a hundred dollars. All you did was knock on a couple pipes. And the plumber says, ah, knocking on the pipes is only $5. The other $95 comes from knowing where to knock. Bit of a Zen Zen Koan aspect to that joke, <laughs> I feel like, and also clearly some investment applications. I just and I, I just love the um, the banging on the pipes as it just is a great phrase that I like <laughs> like to turn over in my head. Banging on the pipes, <laughs> knocking on the pipes. 
Daniel, I think we've knocked on the pipes enough. What do you think? Yeah, I think we can. We we knew where to knock. I hope well enough on this episode. And uh, yeah, let's let's leave it there and go for chapters three and four next time. Okay, Daniel. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Mike. All right. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you did enjoy it. As always, leave us a rating or a review on Apple's podcast app or iTunes. If you have feedback, contact us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. We're going to chapters three and four on next week's episode, which are the heart of the book, so watch for that. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening. See you next week on Behind the Idea.